Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians 3. Uh, last Sunday we began a new series of sermons on the benefits of salvation in Christ, which will follow the outline of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, what benefits do we receive in this life? What benefits do we receive at death? And what benefits do we receive at the resurrection? We began last week with the first benefit we receive in this life, which is justification. In justification, God declares us to be righteous. That means our sins are forgiven, never to be counted against us. Our debt is canceled. It's paid in full by Jesus so that in him there is no condemnation that we need to fear. But even more than that, Jesus' perfect obedience has been credited to our account. In Christ, we have perfectly fulfilled the law. This is what we sang about earlier in Great God from Thee. This is the first benefit of salvation, and it is the foundational benefit. In, in, in a sense, all the other benefits presuppose our justification. But it is important to remember there are other benefits. Justification is not the sum total of our salvation. The salvation that God is giving to His people is richer by far. This morning we're going to look at the second benefit of, uh, of salvation that's listed in our catechism, and that is the benefit of adoption. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's Word, let's pray, asking God's blessing upon our study of His Word this morning. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, Your Word is truly a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Give us grace to receive your truth in faith and love and strength to follow on the path you set before us as your beloved children. This we pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Galatians 3, picking up in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we may, might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. 
Welcome. Good to see y'all. Yeah, there you go. There's one spot there. Yeah, perfect. All right, guys. I, I heard a story about an orphaned boy. Do you know what an orphan is? Yeah, so somebody who doesn't have a mom and dad that they can live with. Uh, this was a, an orphan boy who lived on the streets all by himself. His parents had died, and he had no family to take care of him, and so he spent his days begging for money, looking for food, just trying to find a safe place to sleep. But most of the grown-ups that he met either just ignored him or treated him badly, and he had a really rough life. But that was not the end of his story. One day, some Christians saw him. The husband and wife saw him, and their hearts were filled with love for this little boy. They met him and showed kindness to him, and, and as he got to know them, his trust in them really grew. And he was glad when they said that they were going to go through the process of adopting him into their family as their very own son. And, and that's what they did. He had a family again at last. And, and they brought him into their home and took good care of him. But sometimes he still felt kind of like an orphan. Like one day he did something wrong. His parents frowned. And they spoke sternly to him as they corrected him. And suddenly, that boy, he grew afraid. He began to wonder if his parents who had adopted him were maybe going to send him away, maybe back to his old life. And, and with that fear, something in his heart told him to run and hide. And so that's what he did. He ran to his room and he hid under his bed, hoping that they wouldn't find him and send him back to the streets. His parents understood what was happening, and it broke their hearts to see him so afraid. And so his dad came into the room. He got down on the floor and saw the boy under the bed. And the dad slowly crawled through all the dust and toys that were under the bed, to be beside his boy. And he told his son, Son, you, you did something wrong. That's true. But don't think, don't imagine, even for one minute, that you're ever going to stop being my son. I won't stop loving you, and I'll never send you away. Not today. Not ever. Sometimes you and I can be a little bit like that boy. Because of the sin that still lives in every one of us, in every Christian, we struggle to obey God and we fail to obey Him. And when we do, that fear can rise up in our hearts and we can wonder, will God still love us? Will He send us away? But that's where the good news about Jesus just gets better and better. Because in the passage that we just read, we were told that not only does God forgive our sins since Jesus died in our place, but he adopts us as his very own children. He brings us into his house 
And he calls us his very own. And that means Jesus is not only our rescuer, he's also our big brother. And now with God as our father, we can know for sure that he is going to take care of us today and tomorrow. Yes, it's true that when we sin, he, we may see his frown. He may correct us, but that's actually a part of his love for us. And so because we know he loves us, because he already saved us through Jesus, and because he brought us into his family, we can trust that God is going to give us everything that we need right now. And he promises to give us everything in the age to come. That's what it means to be his child. And that's what you are in Christ Jesus, which is another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks guys. You can go back to your seats. If you've not done so already, open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We're focusing on those verses that Sam read for us, the the last paragraph of chapter 3 and then uh, the first paragraph of chapter 4, beginning uh, with verse 23 uh, of chapter 3 through verse 7 uh, of chapter 4. And in these verses, Paul draws for us a sharp distinction between slaves and sons. Formerly, we were slaves. But he tells us we are no longer. Now in Christ, we are sons. Sons and daughters of the living God. And therefore, to understand what Paul means when he says that we have been adopted into God's families, that we are now the sons of God, we must first understand what he means when he says... We were formerly slaves. So look with me there at verse 3 in chapter 4. Paul writes, In the same way, we also, when we were children, that is when we were underage, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now the word that's translated here as elementary elementary principles is is the word stoikia, which is a, a word that is notoriously difficult to translate. But I think we can get a pretty good sense of what Paul has in mind when we we read the entire context. So so look with me back at verse 23 of chapter 3. There, Paul writes, before faith came, we were held captive. And notice what he says, we were held captive under the law. We see the same thing in the next verse. The law was our guardian. And he he continues with this theme in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law. And so in Paul's mind, being a slave is equivalent to, or at least uh, parallel to, being under the law. We see the same thing when Paul goes on to warn the Galatians against returning to their former slavery. What would it mean to return to this slavery? He he tells us, beginning in the verses right after the verses that that Sam read, verses 8 through 11. Notice what he writes. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? 
whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid that I have labored over you in vain. So, so follow Paul's logic here. Follow what he is saying, returning to the weak and worthless elementary principles, returning to the storkeia of the world, is demonstrated how? It is demonstrated by observing days and months and seasons and years. The, the calendar set forth in the law. In other words, returning to the elementary principles is returning to the regulations of the law. And we see the same thing in Colossians chapter 2, the only other place where Paul uses this this language. In Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. You've heard that. And he he speaks about empty philosophy. But, But he also says, see to it that no one takes you captive by a philosophy that is according to the stoicheia, according to the elementary. There it's translated as spirits. You'll have to ask the translators why. But it's the same word, elementary principles of the world. And in the context, being taken captive by these elementary principles is the same as it is here in Galatians. It means returning to the law. It means, again, submitting yourself to the law. For he says there in in chapter 2, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Let no one pass judgment on you according to the calendar set forth in the law. And he says it again in verse 20 of Colossians 2. He says, if, if with Christ you died to the elementary spirits, the elementary principles, why do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These have the appearance of wisdom, he says, but they are actually powerless to reshape the Christian life. So again and again, Paul makes it clear that our slavery, our former slavery, was to the law. To be a slave is to be under the law. And what I want you to notice is that this was true for the Galatians, and it was true for the Colossians, even though they were never under the Mosaic law. They were, they were Gentiles. They, they weren't under the law of Moses. That law was given exclusively to Israel. But the Galatians and the Colossians were under the law in as much as they were under the Stoiche and as much as they were under the elementary principles of this world. And when you think about that, if being under the law and being under the Stoiche is the same thing, then it strongly suggests that these Gentiles were under the law in as much as they were under an obligation to establish their own righteousness through works. Justice is the elementary principle of the world that we live in. People get what they deserve. People receive according to what they have done in the body or what they have not done. This is what it means to to be under law. This is what it means to be under the elementary principle of the world. It it means to, to be under a burden of justice. It means that you will receive exactly what you deserve. And to be under this principle, to be under this principle of the world, is to be in slavery. This is the slavery that every man is born into. Before we were in Christ, we were under the law. That is, we related to God through the law. We lived under this principle. Do this, and you will live. Do not do this, and you will 
die. And that's true whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. As a Jew, you're under the Mosaic law. But even as a Gentile, you're under God's law as it is woven into the very fabric of the cosmos in which you live. And you're under an obligation to God to establish your own righteousness by what you do in the body. And to be in such a condition, Paul says, is to be a slave. But why? Why is it slavery to live under the elementary principle of justice? We might think that it's slavery because we're being told what to do. We're not free to, to choose our own course. We're not free to, to go our own way. But while that is true, it is not the essence of the slavery that Paul is talking about. Because think about it. That will remain true even when you are adopted into God's family. Even as a child of God, you, you are still not free to do whatever is right in your own eyes. Even as a child of God, you, you still live according to his word. So slavery doesn't mean simply that, that, that you have a moral obligation to God. It doesn't mean simply that, that God directs your steps and, and tells you which way to go. The slavery that Paul is talking about is something more than this, something other than this. It is slavery not simply because we are told what to do, but because the conditions that are imposed upon us are more than we can bear. What is demanded of us is beyond our ability. Think of the Israelites being asked to make bricks without straw. It, it's not inherently uh, slave work to, to make bricks, but, but the, their slavery consisted in the, the harsh treatment that they received from their cruel taskmasters, and that is the picture of slavery that Paul has in mind. Being asked to make bricks without straw, that is our condition under the law. The law itself is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with being under the law. We saw last week that our justification actually transforms our, our relationship to the law, where it is, it is no longer a burden, it is no longer an accuser, it is no uh, longer the, uh, a crushing weight, but now it is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. It is now a delight, sweet to us like, like honey, precious to us like silver. This is, this is what the scriptures say about the law for one who is justified, for one who's not under it in order to establish his own righteousness. So there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy and, and righteous and good. But it is crushing for us to be under the law because we can't keep it. Because we are weakened by sin. And you know that firsthand. You've experienced that in your own endeavors to, to be good, in your own endeavors to, to please God. You can say with Paul in Romans chapter 7 that the good you want to do, you do not do. And the evil you do not want to do, this you keep on doing. We know that to be true. And it is that experience, that experience of being unable to, to fulfill what is asked of us, that is the experience of a slave being required to establish our own righteousness, but without the strength or the resources to actually do it. That's the slavery that Paul is talking about. That's the slavery that, that Paul has in mind. That's what it is to, to be under the elementary principles of this world, to be in that position of having to establish your own righteousness before God, but without the ability to do it. And that is why Paul says that that those who rely on the law are under a curse. 
Because the law says, do this and you will live, and we can't do it. But when you see what what Paul is talking about, when he's talking about slavery, when you you see the true condition of a slave, you understand then why Paul would say so emphatically, why would anyone voluntarily return to that? Why would anyone, again, make themselves a slave? It's as foolish as the uh, Israelites wanting to go back to Egypt. And yet this is what we do all the time. It's what we do when we choose to relate to God on the basis of our own merit. It's what we do when we we present to God our our record and demand that he bless us. When we seek to earn God's favor, when we seek to earn God's blessings, we are relating to our Father as if we were still slaves. But why? Why would we choose to live as slaves when we have been rescued from precisely that slavery? This is what our adoption is. Our adoption is our transfer from slavery into sonship. Formerly we were slaves. Formerly we were under the condemnation of the law. But now we relate to God not as slaves, not through the law, but now we relate to God as children. His love has been lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. We are God's children. Children, a son or or a child is one who has a relationship with God apart from his works. Think about it. A a son is a son. A, A daughter is a daughter. They don't have to earn their place in the family. They don't have to earn their seat at the table. They they have their seat. They have their place simply because of who they are, simply because they are a child of their father. In fact, Even as Sam illustrated with the children, as children, they are loved and have a place even when they do what dishonors their father, even when they do what displeases their mother, even when they fail to live as children, they still are children, for that is who they are. And that's exactly the the wonder of what John is is talking about in his first letter when he writes, Behold what manner of love the the Father has given to us, or as the old song says, has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. In Christ we have been adopted. In Christ we have been given the right to be called the sons of God. We are no longer slaves, but now in Him... We are children of the Father. And this has profound significance for our lives here and now. First, this this means that, that we can have an absolute assurance of the Father's love for us. This is is what John is getting at. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. Our adoption, J.I. Packer says, is, is maybe the most profound picture of God's love for us. We are called his children. But that language of of love is is so familiar. We're so used to talking about God's love that that sometimes it can just sort of wash over us without making an impact. But it should not be. We need to learn to to think clearly and and deeply about what it means to say that God loves us. We need to to sit and and soak in these glorious truths. We need to meditate upon God's love, that that love that has been lavished on us until we see it and, and believe it fully. We are beloved by the Father. 
We are beloved by the Father. Some say that God loves them with their mouths, but in their hearts they they doubt that God could ever really love them because of their sin. Others say that God loves them, but their, their hearts wonder if God actually does love them because of their circumstances. But the truth is that our adoption as sons should put God's love beyond all doubt. God loves us deeply. And he has demonstrated that love by giving us the right to be called his children. Of course, he may still be grieved by our sins. He he may still be displeased by our choices. And he will discipline us. But he disciplines us because he loves us. What we need to understand is that God is always and forever for your good. Your good is his desire and his delight. And that means when he disciplines you, it is not an expression of wrath, but an expression of love. Like any good parent, he is saying, I love you too much to let you run headlong into death. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 12 when he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? This word of encouragement, what is this word? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the word, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. This is the word of encouragement that Scripture speaks to us. In Christ, we have been adopted. In Christ, God is for us. Do you not understand that? You do not have to motivate God to bless you. You do not have to motivate God to to work for your good. He is already as motivated as he ever could be or ever will be. Why? Because you are in Christ, his beloved. And in the beloved, you are beloved. In the beloved, he is for you, working all things together for your good. It is his delight to do so. That is what it means to be a child of God. That is what it means to be adopted. That in Christ we have an absolute assurance of God's love. And it's a steadfast, never failing love. And so the second benefit of this adoption is it means that we now have a sure and certain hope of a future inheritance. Look again at Galatians 4.7. He writes, so you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now think about what that language means in the mind of a a Jew. For For a Jewish person living in the first century, an inheritance reckoned back to the inheritance of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the inheritance was your portion in the promised land. It was the portion of the land that was given to you and to your family. And that is a picture of what Paul has in mind. For here, it refers to our place in the land that that land foreshadowed. That land was never meant to be the sum total of of the inheritance of God's people. It It was a picture, it was a type of what God had in store, of the whole earth being given to his people, of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And when The scriptures speak of your inheritance. That is what it's speaking about. It's speaking about your lot or your portion in that land to come, in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the kingdom of God established on earth as it is in heaven. 
That is what is yours through Christ by virtue of your adoption. Because we are sons and daughters of the king, the kingdom is ours. The kingdom is ours. We, again, we, we need to, to, to let the wonder of this fill our minds. I, I think like God's love, it's a reality that we don't often fully appreciate. We, we say the words without really feeling the, the full import of the meaning. But we need to understand that we have an inheritance in a world put right. We have an inheritance in a world free of the pollution of sin. We have an inheritance in a world where the, the, the pain of brokenness will not be felt. This is your future as a child of God. Now, of course, your future inheritance doesn't mean that your present trials don't hurt. We're we talking about that often enough here. You, they, they do, and, and, and often very badly. We groan in this life. But our future inheritance means that our present trials cannot rob us of our joy because they cannot undermine our ultimate good. Now, some fear that such a future orientation, such, a, such a, a meditation upon the future glory of the inheritance that will ours will make us no earthly good here and now. But of course, this is exactly the opposite of what is true. The truth is that knowing our inheritance is secure in Christ is what frees us to give ourselves away here and now in the service of others. It is knowing our future inheritance that sets us free to become the servant of all. And it is this service that our third that the third benefit uh, relates to because the third benefit, the third consequence of our adoption is is that now we have the promise of present provision. You see, the, the benefits of, of our adoption are not exclusively future. Jesus makes this point in, in Luke chapter 11. We don't have time to, to turn there this, this morning, but this is the context in which the disciples say to Jesus, teach us to pray. And Jesus begins to, to teach them with the Lord's Prayer. And then after giving them the, the, the model of the Lord's Prayer, he then begins to teach them about prayer itself. And it's in that context that Jesus says to them that, that because God is our Heavenly Father, all we have to do is ask and we will receive. Now you know enough to know that this does not mean that God is your genie. That you have uh, unlimited ability to, to ask whatever you wish and he will uh, grant it. But to understand what it does mean, we need to look carefully at the, the context of what Jesus is doing there in, in Luke chapter 11. And as I said, the, the context is that Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray. The request for daily bread comes in the context of, of requests for God's name to be hallowed and for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are our first petitions and they are first for a reason. These petitions begin the Lord's Prayer because these petitions are the priorities of the children of God. It's what we desire more than all else. That God's name would be hallowed, that his, his will would be done, that his kingdom would Come. And when Jesus says in that contest, ask whatever you need and it will be given, we, we understand what he is saying. Jesus is saying that anything we need to this end, it will be God's delight to give us. He will not withhold. He will, he will not give anything less. He will not give anything other than exactly what we need to bring glory to his name and to bring his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. 
He is a father who delights to give good gifts to his children. He will not give a stone instead of bread or a serpent instead of a fish. And this means that we can ask boldly for whatever we need. We don't have to think that we are bothering God. We don't have to think that we are troubling him with things that he doesn't really care about. God is not reluctant to give good gifts to his children. He is not annoyed by our requests, but rather he loves you as his child and delights to give you whatever you need to live as his child. Of course, the other side of the coin is that if you don't have something... It means that your father, your, your good, good father, doesn't think that you need it, at least not at this moment. It's okay to keep asking. Persistence in prayer is, is honored in the scriptures. But at the same time, it, it lets you keep asking persistently without anxiety. Because it means that you can be content, knowing that if you lack anything, it is not because your father lacks concern. If you lack anything, it's, it's not because he is unaware of your need. If you lack anything, it's because in his unsearchable wisdom, he knows you don't need it yet. Because he delights to give you whatever you need to live as his child here and now to the praise of his glory. And this then brings us to the final point. The, the, the final expression, the ultimate expression of God's present provision. And we see that in Luke 11, when Jesus says that it's the Father's delight to give to the children His Spirit. The greatest benefit of God's current provision is Himself. The greatest benefit of God's current provision is His Holy Spirit poured into your heart. Again, Jesus says it this way, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, because we are children of the living God, we have been given the Spirit. Paul says we've been given the Spirit as the seal of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. I know there are some who, who doubt that they have the Spirit because they do not have certain gifts. But Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that while every believer has the Spirit, not every believer has any one particular gift. If you are a believer, regardless of your gifting, if you are a believer and you are in Christ, and in Christ you are an adopted child, and as an adopted child you have the Holy Spirit. That means that the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is now at work in you. And that means not only do you have every external resource you need to live as his child, but you have every internal resource as well, for he is at work in you to will and to do his good pleasure. That's why Augustine could teach that God commands whatever he wills, but gives what he commands. Because he gives his spirit. He gives us the, the immeasurable power of God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that we might will and do his good pleasure, that we might live here and now as his children. That's what it means to be adopted. It means that you are beloved by the Father with an inheritance in the coming kingdom and a promise of every provision you need now to live as his child until that day, sealed 
by the immeasurable power of the Holy Spirit. This is what's true of you. This this is what it means to receive salvation. It means to be called a child of God with all of the benefits and privileges of that sonship. And because all of this is ours in Christ alone, that is one reason we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, open our eyes to see the wonder and the glory of the salvation that is ours in Christ. Open our minds and our hearts, Father, to to know and to understand and to delight in what it means to be called your child, Father. Behold what manner of love you have lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Help us to believe it. Help us to rest in it. And help us to live out of it to the praise of your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.